Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. G'day, and welcome to the National Security Podcast and our special series on the Women in National Security Conference. I'm Gabrielle Knaip, and I'm back today with more interviews and comments from some of the world's leading national security experts. This is the third day of the series, and we've got another huge episode for you. Today was the first day of the Women in National Security Conference, which was opened by a welcome to country by Matilda House. Auntie Matilda is chair of the Ngambri Local Aboriginal Land Council. As she opened the conference, it's only fitting that she also opens our podcast. Chris caught up with her today after her welcome to country, so let's hear what she had to say. Hi, Auntie Matilda. That was an amazing welcome to country you just gave. Thanks very much for doing it. If you could, in a few quick lines, uh, pass on to the listeners what the central message of your welcome to country was for the conference, that would be great. Well, this welcome that I've done today was such a privilege and an honour because of the wins. Women in national security, what a wonderful, wonderful way to have women involved and we have created the best things in our lives for the security and that is what it's all about, what I spoke about today. Giving the reference to beautiful women that I'd known and whose families that I've known and that means, you know, Jessie Street, Faith Bandler, and Evelyn Scott. And of course, my mother, which I'd forgot to put in that, is, was a wonderful lady that kept the fire burning for me in, so my shoes can be filled from her. And my grandmother's wonderful women. Security was what the things that looked after us as growing up as children. That's what made us strong today, was the women on our Aboriginal missions, on the fringes, and those who were taken away. Yep, that's what it's all about. Women doing the best they can, and they always do. On today's pod, we have an interview with US nuclear security expert Madeline Creedon, who is a big name in the national security space, having a long and distinguished career in US government service. But before that, we have some on-the-ground insight into the conference so far. Chris Farnham, who listeners know as the regular host for the podcast, has been busy collecting thoughts and comments from guests and speakers. They're going to draw out some of the highlights, controversies and big ideas from today's talks. Let's hear what they had to say. G'day, welcome to the Women in National Security Conference. What's your name and who are you representing? 
My name is Thea Gallifi and I'm from the Australian National University. That's right, we work together. So have you enjoyed the conference so far, Thea? I'm finding it very, very interesting. It's a very different focus to the last Women in National Security Conference that I went to. I'm really enjoying hearing so many female experts talking about their craft as opposed to issues specific to women within their craft. My name's Kelly Charles. I work for the Australian Cyber Security Centre. Fantastic. And your name? Uh, Marianne. I work for the Australian Cyber Security Centre too. What did you think of uh, Julie Bishop's speech this morning? Oh, I think there have been a lot of um, really inspiring speakers, including the Secretary of Foreign Affairs. And the fact is that the, this whole room, we're all part of the new normal. And it's, it's really inspiring to be part of that. It's a great initiative and I hope these conferences continue. And with me now, I have Susan Hutchinson from the Coral Bell School. G'day, Susan. Welcome to the Women in National Security Conference. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Excellent. And how did you think of uh, Julie Bishop's presentation this morning? It was really wonderful to get her now that she's not in Cabinet anymore. Some really frank discussions. I was uh, I was surprised and impressed by the kind of the nuance of her discussion, looking at um, lessons from history around Nazi Germany and kind of the problems with populism and what that can mean for the international rules based order and what we need to be really careful of to make sure that we can maintain the peace and prosperity that we experience in the world today. Okay, I'm from Malaysia, Malaysian Armed Forces. I'm Brigadier General Surya Kala. Wonderful to meet you and how have you enjoyed the conference so far? It's fantastic. Um, I feel very honoured and also indeed um, uh, feel very happy to be here with all the distinguished uh, speakers and and the representations from Australia and also other countries. It's fantastic. Thank you. How's the rice? I like the rice. Actually, it's good. Yeah? You going back for seconds? I'll respectfully wait until there's no line and then I might go back for seconds, yeah. Oh, nice. Uh, I'm Rachel Young. I'm here representing the Department of Defence. Excellent. And so what's been your main takeaway from the conference so far? It's just great to see some female leaders being given the opportunity to speak on things that they're experts about um, and being given the recognition that I think uh, women in this field should have been given a long time ago. So it's really interesting. Now, when I came up to the table, your friend over here actually threw you all under the bus to do the talking for her. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask her what her name is. So what's your name and who are you representing? I'm Sarah from Department of Defence. Fantastic. And, and what's been your main takeaway from the conference so far? Uh, I'd agree with what Rachel said. And I think that it's often said in courses and in conferences that they can't get females to come and speak. And I think this conference has just proven that that's a throwaway and, and a bit of an excuse that there are plenty of women doing great things in this field. And there's a lot we can learn from them. Hi, my name's Gab Barnes. I work for the Australian Federal Police. I really enjoyed hearing about the different perspectives on the security in the Indo-Pacific. I think it's a topic that probably needs to be discussed more, considering all the tensions um, around that area. And I'm particularly looking forward to hearing from Frances Adamson and also tomorrow hearing more perspectives on cybersecurity and uh, the impact that that's having on Australia. Hi, my name is Amelia Long. I'm representing the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade today. As an Indo-Pacific wonk, um, I really enjoyed the panel discussion that we just had on um, the concept, concept of the Indo-Pacific and Indo-Pacific security more broadly. My name is Beata Gasanova. I'm here representing DFAT. I work for DFAT. Good morning. My name is Amanda McGregor and I also work for DFAT. Excellent. And how did you find the first session? Uh, fascinating. I think... People, the calibre of Julia Bishop speaking about power, I think there's a lot to learn, especially for those of us that are practitioners in the area. Um, Yes, I would agree. It was fascinating to hear former Minister Bishop speak about the changing national or international security landscape uh, with regard to 
um, the, the trends of populism and how we need to deal with that to preserve the international rules-based order. Uh, I'm Anna Matthew and I'm from Papua New Guinea. I'm representing Papua New Defence Force. I'm with the Gender and Policy Committee working on policy for women in the PNG Defence Force. I'm looking at getting uh, out of the conference about how um, women and peace in regards to peace and security and the voice in women, you know, sometimes in PNG we have, it's more male dominated and trying to find out what we can do uh, in representing PNG Defence Force women and what I can get from this and see the experience that other women have to build up our, um, our PNG Defence Force uh, women, female capability. That was Chris Farnham catching up with some of the participants from the Women in National Security Conference. This week, Chris has delegated some of his usual hosting responsibility on the podcast and handed over the reins to some of the outstanding women attending the conference. In fact, you're about to hear from two of them. Dr. Jennifer Hunt is a lecturer at the National Security College and a research associate at the US Study Centre. Her research portfolio examines the intersection between defence, energy and economic security issues, which makes her a fantastic person to interview our next guest. Madeline Creedon is the 2018 Alliance 21 Fellow at the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney. As mentioned at the start of this pod, she has had an illustrious career in the US government. Most recently, this has included her role as Principal Deputy Administrator of the National Nuclear Security Administration a position she held from 2014 to 2017. Before that, she served in the Pentagon as Assistant Secretary of Defence for Global Strategic Affairs, overseeing policy development in the areas of missile defence, nuclear security, cyber security and space. Before we get into that, a quick reminder that we'd love to hear from our listeners about any of the issues we discuss on the podcast. You can get in touch with us by Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society, on Twitter, where we are at Apps Policy Forum, or just shoot us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. For now, let's listen to what Jennifer Hunt and Madeline Creedon had to say. Hello, Madeline, and thank you for joining us at the National Security Podcast. All right, let's jump right in. There has been a recent announcement from the White House about the INF, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and its potential implications? Well, first, thank you very much for being here. It's, uh, it certainly is a, is a pleasure to be not only in Canberra, but in Australia generally. So moving on to the INF Treaty. The INF Treaty is a very interesting treaty because it was signed by Reagan and Gorbachev. And when they signed it, they were eliminating an entire class of missiles. Even though it's called the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the missiles are really what the subject of the treaty is. So it's all missiles that fit within the range of the treaty, which is 500 to 550 kilometers. And it didn't matter if those missiles were nuclear or not. It really is just focused on the missiles and it's ground-based missiles, but it's both 
ballistic missiles, and cruise missiles. And they were completely eliminated under this treaty. And the the elimination was completed in 1991. Thank you first for translating into kilometers. As you may have noticed from the accents, we're both Americans, so we probably still think in miles. So in regards to what that might mean by doing away with this treaty, is it true that Russia was in violation? They were. Uh, the U.S. made that determination in 2014. Every year, the U.S. State Department puts out a document that surveys uh, various arms control treaties and who's in compliance and who's not. And in the document for 2014, it was very clear that Russia was in violation of the treaty. We'd been watching for a while, and uh, the treaty violations had occurred a little bit earlier, and it was it was clear by 14, so that's when the public announcement was made. So this was a Cold War era treaty, but upheld until it sounds like relatively recently, so starting under Putin then? So yes. So in 14, um, which is when we made the announcement, the, the the really interesting thing about this treaty is because it eliminated an entire class of missiles, it brought significant stability to NATO because it really was focused on NATO. Both the U.S. and Russia uh, in the late 80s had substantial ground-based missile systems that they were putting in uh, in the European territory and you had significant tensions. And when Reagan and Gorbachev decided to do away with this, particularly although they didn't know the Cold War was coming to an end at the time, uh, it made a huge difference in terms of restoring stability in NATO. And I was reading that Gorbachev has come out and said this is potentially a mistake and it sounds like our European allies will be none too pleased as well. He did. And I think he certainly realizes the significance of this treaty. Uh, It's the only treaty that really has absolutely eliminated an entire class of systems. Most other arms control treaties put limitations on numbers. They'll put uh, limitations maybe on ranges. Testing treaties over the years put uh, limitations on the yield of various tests. So this was really a very unique and a very special treaty. Well, something to watch then. Uh, Trump has also been talking about the nuclear arsenal in general. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And one of the reasons, just to link the two together, uh, that I'm very worried about this stated intent to pull out of the INF Treaty. First, the administration can't pull out of it unless there's a six-month notification. So on the one hand, you hope that maybe this is some sort of a bargaining tool for something, either to get Russia back into compliance or possibly to multilateralize the treaty and, and bring in China or others in this region as well. But the other thing that I worry very much about this is the implications on the nuclear stockpile. The current arms control treaty that governs the U.S. and Russian stockpile is the New START Treaty. That treaty puts limitations on delivery systems and also the number of operationally deployed strategic warheads. That treaty entered into force several years ago, but the key part of the treaty just came into being in February of this year. That was when both sides had to meet those central limits. What's important and where the two of them get linked, I think, is the New START Treaty expires in 2021. There's a provision in the treaty that it can be extended for five years if the two countries agree. And because it's built into the treaty, it doesn't have to go back to the U.S. Senate for ratification. What I worry about, both with the rhetoric coming from President Trump lately about the need to build up and pulling out of the INF Treaty, I worry that the New START Treaty won't be extended, that 
this action now is laying the foundation for not having discussions with Russia. And we know that Trump has filed for re-election, so he could potentially still be in office when this is due to expire. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned the um, the treaty from a Senate perspective. This has got to be one of the last treaties that the Senate ever ratified. We, we now move by executive order more than treaties. All right. Um, executive orders outnumber treaties 20 to 1. Well, we, we've talked about Trump enough for one day, so why don't we move on to another topic? So you started and ended your public service career in the same department, the Department of Energy. Can you tell us a little bit about how that environment has changed um, since you've joined the profession? So I started at the Department of Energy as a lawyer. That's how I was trained. But I left uh, about, oh, I was about 10 years in, and I went to the Hill. So worked for the Congress, and specifically, I worked for the Senate Armed Services Committee. I was up there the better part of 20 years, and then left and went to the Department of Defense, and then came back to DOE. But when I came back to DOE, I went back into an organization called the National Nuclear Security Administration that hadn't existed when I first started working for DOE. In fact, it was created, it was a creature of Congress in many respects, uh, to put focus and attention on both the nuclear weapons programs and the nonproliferation programs. When it was created in uh, 1999, um, it, it carved out all of this nuclear agenda, if you will, and put it in the NNSA. So when I went back, uh, I was back to an organization that hadn't been stood up all that long. It actually got it uh, came into being in the in the late 90s, but it um, but it really is a semi-autonomous agency. So it's a little strange um, in terms of its its position in the department, but it's, it was a lot of fun, great people, and it's an extraordinary mission. And would that be heavily staffed with scientists and sort of those technically inclined people as opposed to uh, the regular rank and file of, of the bureaucracy? It's both. It depends on the agency. We certainly have a lot of scientists and engineers, but the whole department does. Um, when, the, when the Department of Energy was created after the oil and gas crisis in the 70s, uh, the irony is that about two-thirds of the Department of Energy is defense-funded. And only the little other piece of it is really what does the energy. So it probably was misnamed from the outset and should probably have been the Department of Energy and Science. And since you mentioned that that congressional experience, how do you think that informs how you see policymaking and, and developments from a White House versus legislative perspective? I have had the opportunity to be both on the policy side uh, and the executive branch and then obviously on the Hill. So I've been in a policy office. I've been in an office that has actually overseen programmatic implementation. And then when I was on the Hill, I was part of the authorizing committees that are the authorizers and oversee how those agencies are implementing programs. So having sat on sat at all three different seats of this table, I think it's helped do each of those better, particularly on the policy side. Sometimes it's hard for folks in the policy arena if they've never been involved with programs, understanding the impacts of the policy on the programs. And it's really hard. I mean, I know people think it's very hard to develop policy. Uh, and that's true, but that's only the first step. The second step is you, now you have to implement the policy, which means money. And getting programs to then do to take the actions, develop the programs that then implement the policy. And 
And unless all of that happens, the policy is just so many words on paper. So you must have seen some very interesting funding debates at your time in the Senate Armed Forces Committee. Any that stand out? Probably for me personally, although it wasn't so much it wasn't so much a budgetary debate, um, and there have been lots and lots of those. Uh, but it really was a debate on the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. It was a treaty that the U.S. under President Clinton really led the negotiation. I think the U.S. was the first to sign, and yet the U.S. has never ratified. When the treaty came up for consideration in 1999, it was defeated by the Senate. I think that was a huge blow. Uh, it was very hard. I was part of the staff that worked on uh, worked worked on the on the whole debate. Worked really hard for the passage. It didn't happen. Um, I think that was a mistake. I truly do. And that's always been one of the big debates that's stuck with me. And a lot of analysis and a lot of lessons learned in terms of what what didn't go right, what did go right. And so those lessons learned then were were a big part of how we handled the debate on the New START Treaty. And would any of those lessons learned, would those be around uh, sort of the hyper-partisanship that we see increasingly in Congress or were there, were there different reasons? That's part of it. Um, I think, again, at least on the new start, it was making sure that there was an intersection with, uh, with the policy and the goals, that it really was in the strategic interests of the U.S. to have this treaty, which it was. Uh, also, what happened at that point is the there was a, a very large contingent in the Senate that rightly recognized that a lot of the infrastructure uh, that's part of the nuclear weapons complex had really been um, allowed to atrophy, uh, mostly on the production side. The science side was actually pretty good, uh, but on the on the production side. So there were a, a group of folks who said, we'll support this treaty, or if you want this treaty, you have to put more money on the table. That actually turned out to be a good thing. Um, that there was a little more money on the table for the complex. It was a very old complex. Remember I said that the National Nuclear Security Administration has its roots in the Manhattan Project? Some of those buildings that the people of the NNSA work in were Manhattan Project era buildings that were falling down. So it it was a good thing, but that was that was how that compromise was achieved and then the treaty passed. And there is a modernization effort underway. Can you tell us a little bit about that? There is. Um, under the Obama administration, one of the things that was was clear uh, was uh, two problems. One, the delivery systems, so the submarines, the bombers, the ICBMs, the intercontinental ballistic missile, mi missiles were all old and they were all getting to the end in many respects some of them passed their life. And so they had to be replaced. And that we also looked at the warheads. And so the warheads had the same problem. Um, a lot of these uh, warheads date back to the 60s. The last time the U.S. built a new warhead was in the late 80s. And as a matter of policy, we were not going to build new ones. And we were certainly not going to build any new ones with any new military purpose. So what do you do? Um, and we started with a life extension program, which basically looked at all the parts and pieces of these warheads and said, OK, what needs to be replaced? So their wires and their radars and their vacuum tubes, even in some of them still, and old computer parts and just all of this. Um, the scientists, because of years of working in um, the stockpiled stewardship program, 
could look at these warheads and say, okay, you know, th this has to be replaced, this has to be fixed. So basically, they're going through a big overhaul. So if you think of you having an old car, it's being completely rebuilt. It's still your car when it comes out, but now it has better parts. I'm imagining these decrepit buildings with pneumatic tubes now. Um, and given that Russia's arsenal is roughly the same age, would they be embarking on a similar program? They are, although they, ha they have had a somewhat different approach. Um, and they, because the, in the U.S., the um, parts, some of the parts are no longer made in the U.S. They're, we're trying to recapture some of that capability. Um, but Russia has had a somewhat different approach. And so they've had, they have tended to remanufacture theirs where we're rebuilding ours. So just a little bit different approach. Interesting. I remember reading about the SR-71 where we didn't have some of the raw materials for some of the for that very project and so set up shell corporations to get the titanium, which was exclusively in the Soviet Union. Do we have any supply problems like that in the United States? Um, most of the supply, supply problems that we have now tend to be things that are no longer made, tend to be materials that either are no longer made or haven't been made in a very long time. So it's just trying to recapture the formulas, if you will. Um, and the other is just because there are a lot of electronic parts and we don't need a lot of them because we don't have a lot of warheads in our arsenal, uh, just p finding suppliers to actually make some of these parts. So as a result, the Department of Energy has a facility in, uh, outside Kansas City that does make a lot of the electronic parts in-house. Okay, that's fantastic. You know, if you need a job done, you know, you gotta, sometimes, sometimes you got to do it yourself. Sometimes you have to do it yourself. <laughs> I had one final question, just noting that uh, another initiative of the administration has been around the Space Force. And you mentioned your policy experience, your legislators, experience, your um, sort of in-depth experience in the, the implementation of a new initiative like this. And uh, so, so what are your thoughts on, on the Space Force? So I actually just did um, a small piece on the Space Force. Malcolm Davis and I did a debate paper for the U.S. Study Center on the Space Force. I, I, well, let me back up a little bit. So the U.S. has, without a doubt, um, the absolute, mo absolutely most capable space systems for a wide range of applications, from nuclear command and control to overhead capabilities called ISR, um, surveillance, reconnaissance, communications, global positioning, all of it. So it's it's truly is amazing and it really is an incredible enabler. Um, but there are threats. And the question really is how does, how does the Department of Defense organize best for threats? Um, I have some mixed emotions about the Space Force. Uh, it could be a good thing, but I think it has to um, walk back some of the fragmentation in national security space. So if it's just going to be the Air Force, and it's just the Air Force folks who do space, and you just put a new patch on their sleeve without changing some of the underlying problems, primarily some of the very difficult um, procurement statutes and regulations, which really are part of the reason why you have substantial overruns in some of these programs. Um, without changing some of those fundamental underlying rules and regulations, I don't know what you gain for it. Um, the other piece is there are, are a lot of people in national security space. And to make it really work and to make it really efficient, I think you'd have to bring them all together. 
And I, that probably won't happen. It's probably too hard. But my biggest worry is if we're going to do a Space Force, we really need to do it right. And you mentioned the Air Force. Is it exclusively the military that's been taking the lead in this? Or does NASA also contribute to part of this? So NASA is civil space. And, and I do not advocate for a, co- a combination of the national security space and the civil space. Lots of, lots of good cooperation, but they have a very different mission. All right. For our final question, I thought I might ask uh, if you have any anecdotes or suggestions for women entering uh, the crowded field of national security now. So I would offer two thoughts, and it's certainly not... Um, limited to national security. But the first is for uh, women who are entering any field um, and women who have been in a field a very short period of time is our parents, our professors, our teachers all say, well, you, know, you have to have a plan for your life. You have to, have a, you have to go you know, plan out what you're going to do with your life. And, and that's true to a point, but I will tell people, don't fall in love with your plan because life doesn't follow a plan. And some of the most interesting interesting opportunities will come to you in the most unexpected places. I got to the Department of Energy because of a conversation that I had with somebody I didn't know standing in line at the boat store to buy parts for our sailboat. So you just never know when, when something really special is going to come truly out of the blue. So you have to embrace it. Don't love your plan too much and be open to, to new opportunities. Uh, the, other, the other piece of it is, although it isn't so much anymore, but certainly early on in my career, there were, there were times when there weren't a lot of women in the room. And we've all heard it where a woman makes a comment and then some other male person in the room um, will make the same comment. And then, and then everybody else says, well, that's just a really great comment where happened to have been the other person, the woman that maybe made it first. So it's a, it's, a, it's a good thing that when you make that comment and somebody else takes your comment, you have to get it back. So own that comment because that's how you build a reputation. If it was a good comment and it was adopted, own it, get it back and be proud of it. Okay. So you heard it first here, kids. Talk to strangers and take credit for your work. Okay. I was an adult <laughs> when I was talking to strangers. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time, Madeline. Madeline will be presenting at the Women International Security Conference tomorrow, so feel free to join us. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you made it this far, I like to think there's a fair chance you did, please consider doing us a favour and leaving us a quick review on iTunes. All you need to do is click on that fifth star. We'll be back again tomorrow with more from the Women in National Security Conference. I'm Gabrielle Kanaik. Bye for now. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.